Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, we catch up with Matt Luongo from Thesis for a chat about TBTC. We talk about BTC to ETH bridges generally, what went down with the initial TBTC release, and more. But before we start, I want to let you know about the Zero Knowledge Podcast grant on Gitcoin and the current CLR matching round that's happening right now. The way that CLR matching works on Gitcoin is that every time you make a donation to the Zero Knowledge Podcast grant, this amount will be partially matched by a sponsor's donation. The more donations we receive, the higher the matching. So this means even if you contribute only a small amount, your contributions actually go a lot further. Anyway, I hope you will consider supporting on this round. I've added the link to our grant in the show notes, so please consider supporting. It would be awesome and would mean a lot. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the podcast, maybe leave a comment. This helps other people to find this podcast and also to kind of spread zero-knowledge research information a little bit wider, which I think is a pretty cool thing. So, And hopefully you do too. All right. Now here is our episode with Matt all about TBTC. So today we're sitting with Matt Luongo, who is the CEO of Thesis, project lead of TBTC, and also founder of Keep Networks. I think the one of the main goals with this episode is to understand a little bit like why bridging from BTC is so important and challenging and all of that. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. So you're you're involved with a bunch of projects and I believe they must be related to each other. Yeah. But it's probably good if you explain kind of <laughs> what you do and how, you know, what these entities are. Yeah, so the brand soup is intricate. Uh, but I think the ideas are, are pretty straightforward. So I started in crypto in uh, 2013, 2014, and we launched a Bitcoin 1.0 company called Fold. It's actually still around. They're doing great. Um, they're about to launch a rewards credit card. But, you know, in like 2016, 2017, it became pretty clear in the Bitcoin space that payments was not going to be the use case, right? So this was before the Bitcoin cash split. But, you know, I'd been through so many arguments with miners and with like various parties. And it's just obvious that that wasn't going to be Bitcoin's direction. And so when that happened, I started looking at other projects that I was interested in. Because even though I love Bitcoin as an asset, I'm an engineer and I like to build things. And it's a lot more difficult to build on Bitcoin than it is on much more expressive chains. And before anyone gets on me for that, I think that's great. I've actually come to find that's like a strength because we need that in our ecosystem. But uh, but it's very frustrating as an individual who's building stuff. So 2016, 2017, I started looking at like what problems have I run into in this space that I really want solved. And um, a big one was just this idea of like, I think there was especially in 2017, this idea of like smart contracts solving all of the things, which really like I think now people know that these chains really aren't about complete anything. They're proof chains. You know, they're a place to shelf proofs that we then get consensus on to enable interesting applications. But in 2017, people had no idea. And so um, when I started working in Ethereum, I saw that I, I wanted to store gift card details. And I was like, oh, I'm sure Ethereum devs have a solution 
for confidential information. And of course there wasn't. I started thinking about PII for medical applications. There wasn't a solution there. So in true nerdy founder fashion, instead of just working on something different, I dove into multi-party computation. I got really back to my CS roots on, on the cryptography side. And that's what led to Keep. So now you've got Fold and then Keep. And I said, okay, well, we have two projects. <laughs> they both have a life. Uh, we got a new team for Fold. So we said, we probably need a name for the company that's not either of those. That became Thesis. So there's, th uh -huh. there's three of the brands. And then finally, uh, you know, as we built out Keep, it, we've had to do a lot of the stuff that a lot of projects in the space have. We needed a random beacon, which I feel like, you know, everyone at this point has needed a beacon. Um, where we've all been waiting on different people to build one, and eventually you build one yourself. Our first application was ECDSA. So how can you keep private and public key pairs separate from the chain and custody this key material? And so eventually we're like, well, now we've built this platform and we should probably ship the first app on it. And that's TBTC. I see. So there's, there's the whole thing. <laughs> so Thesis is the company, and yep. that's where the engineers, like that's the, I guess, for-profit company. Yep. Keep is sort of the token network. Yep, you got it. Project. Yep. And TBTC is a, is a product. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Hey, there you go. There you go. There's a hierarchy. <laughs> I don't know if that's a hierarchy. There's that's a it that's works. a chain of things <laughs> I, with names. <laughs> I expect one of the things lower down will end up outgrowing the company by quite a bit, but okay. um, that's my hope at least, right? So, all right. So I think like I want to understand keep kind of to start off this interview because I think we can then revisit it later. Sure. So what exactly is keep, and what do you? Like, what do you do with Keep? Yeah, yeah. So um, so originally, Keep was focused on developers, right? Because in 2017, they were everywhere. They were just, like, falling out of the sky. Everyone wanted to build something. So I'll start with that. Originally, it was targeted developers. But really, what we were building is the stuff that we wanted. So the things that we wanted, uh, the things that I wanted, were easy ways to spin up new multi-party computation. Like, you can think of them as... There's a lot of different ways to talk about them. Academia doesn't quite name the thing that I'm talking about, but it's kind of like a cluster. Who are all of the participants in this in this MPC setup? What are the rules that they have to follow? And then uh, how can you bond them and basically ensure that they're acting honestly? And if they're not, take their money away. Mm. So MPC, you know, in academia, it's really, it's been incredibly promising, but it's not, it's, it's sort of like fully homomorphic encryption. It really hasn't been used well commercially, and it's only now that cryptocurrency needs some of this stuff that we've kind of dug all of this out and started trying to commercialize. And so what we really needed was, can you take all of these multi-party computation clusters and can you say, okay, each of you guys needs to put down money. Here's a proof format where uh, you have fraud proofs that are simple for slashing. And then how can we choose who actually backs these MPC clusters, and that's through this random beacon. So that's all tech first, you've noticed. Like, I'm not yeah. really talking about applications, very much infrastructure. I have a question on this because um, when we hear about MPCs, we've actually covered it a couple times on the show. I just recently actually did an episode on trusted setups as well, which is an MPC. Yep, perfect. What's the real, is there any relationship to what Keep is doing and what like the MPCs for ZKPs are, or is it a completely yes. different type? No, no, no. So, so MPCs are really wide subject area, which is like the first thing to understand, because really what you're saying is you're trying to compute a function across multiple parties where none of them can, I mean, and, and, the, and the model differs. Maybe you don't want them to bias the output. Maybe you don't want them to abort the output. Maybe you don't want them to control the output. You know, there's a whole variety of uh, threat models. 
But so you could use something like Keep to actually start new trusted setups for ZKPs. Okay. So let's say, for example, you wanted to do some cool snark thing on Ethereum and you're tired of constantly having to find famous people in Ethereum to uh, to be part of your ZKP and like smash their laptop or whatever, like funny security theater you want to come up with. So instead, um, what you could do is you could say, yo, Keep Network, I need a new trusted setup. Here's what the fraud proofs look like. Here's the number of participants I need. The beacon will choose from all Keep stakers, those participants. They all come together. They do the trusted setup. They return the output and then they exit. Now you have no proof that they've, you, and this is always how trusted setups work. You don't have proof that they've gotten rid of the toxic parameters, but the hope is that if you made it large enough, that at least one of them will have had to, and so it's a secure setup. Now, we aren't focused on ZKP trusted setups. I imagine we will in the next couple of years because they're fun, but we've really just focused on like what are sim even simpler MPC applications. So like, can these three people custody Bitcoin without relying on Bitcoin's multi-sig? And then the next step, can they custody any legacy crypto asset without relying on multi-sig? Um, Stuff like that. Do you feel it is Keep really focused on like the MPC software itself or just the... So yeah. how I feel about Keep is we started as a general solution and our approach was... So you guys remember Enigma, <laughs> right? So you read that yeah. and you're like, this is never going to ship. Like the first thing when you read it, like this is not going to happen. Uh, and it's been very clear for a long time. And obviously they pivoted the project and I don't want to throw too many stones, but our approach was, can we do that? Which is like, you know, they doll it up a lot, but is there a way for us to provide data privacy on Ethereum? But instead of solving it in the general way, focus on the 80-20. So ECDSA, RSA, DSA, symmetric encryption, just stick with the stuff that people need all the time, rather than like this sort of like spooky privacy everywhere uh, moonshot. So that's really what Keep is, but now it's unclear if TBTC is going to be the only thing, the most important thing, or if we'll continue. Like we have some short-term roadmap um, stuff for Keep, but it might just be like peg, peg, peg. And so um, it's really just what the market wants. I think if we have another 2017 and developers are falling out of the sky again, yeah, we'll expand our developer Got platform. It. But right now they're just, you know, there's a lot of speculation. There are only a few assets that I think need to exist everywhere, and so we're focused on that. Cool. Okay, so I, I think we have some sense of what Keep is, and I think this is maybe a good time to start talking about the TBTC bridge and all that. Sure. So I think to start in on kind of better understanding TBTC, we have to understand just generally like BTC bridges, because so far we have talked about bridges on this podcast, but we tend, we've mainly talked about kind of ERC-20 to Ethereum bridges. Any, we've talked about bridging where the platform actually has a smart contract possibility, right. which is seemingly quite different from what you're doing with a BTC to anything bridge. Am I right? Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> even, even worse than... Uh, than just than generic smart contract platform, which can have some challenges. I think we've only talked talked about bridging two Ethereum networks, which means you know, both have the exact same capabilities and and like the exact same knowledge of crypto, etc. Which sounds fantastic. Um, from yeah, the work I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there there are a lot of a lot of challenges. So um, Bitcoin's tech is ossified, and uh, 
And it's taken me a long time to respect that versus just be really frustrated by it. Um, but some things that Bitcoin will have one day, where one day is somewhere between six months and three years from now, that would be really helpful. So we could desperately use Schnorr, like something other than ECDSA would really help. So most people like in the Ethereum space don't know the terminology from the Bitcoin space because they're just like to to two totally different camps, but uh, drive chains. So this idea of like basically a side chain to Bitcoin that has some amount of merged consensus. Um, so typically, if you're going Ethereum to Ethereum, you can always use merge consensus. You can make sure that both sides agree um, and you can construct something so that they sort of have to continue in lockstep. But with Bitcoin, it doesn't care about your consensus mechanism and it can't. It doesn't have the capability to care. It can't verify um, any of your proofs. It can't look at your validator set. And it doesn't matter how, um, how well you've built for interop because Bitcoin won't change. And so um, the next best thing, uh, actually, this is even a stretch, but you know, you can do in Bitcoin to get consensus and to validate other protocols is merge mining. But even that has been mostly DOA because we found that these large proof of work miners maybe aren't the right people to decide about additional consensus rules that we're going to enforce at the second layer. But like, let's let's really start kind of at the basic level. Why do you even sure. need it? Let's start with that. Why yeah. do you want the BTC to anything else bridge? Because I think that that's sure. almost like that's philosophical or financial. There's like a lot of reasons. Yeah, so. almost political. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. So why would you want Bitcoin on your smart contract platform? So, um, you know, Bitcoin is old and crusty and we've all moved to this new tech and we don't need Bitcoin. Um, sure. Like I, I understand why people feel that way. The way that I look at the space, though, there are kind of two big narratives going on right now. Um, one is money and the other is tech. And obviously, Ethereum, Polkadot, Cosmos, most folks who are in that space follow this tech narrative, which is the best tech will win. But then on the other side, there's a whole group of people that really don't care about the tech at all. And what they care about is being able to opt out of our economy, being able to opt out of uh, central banks. And some of them, not all of them, some of them care a lot about censorship resistance and uh, being able to sort of like, you know, you can cry cry my Bitcoin for my cool dead fingers kind of people. So you have these two different camps and these two different narratives. And uh, I think I am in the uh, really fun spot of kind of having a foot in both. So on the economics side, I'm a huge Bitcoin fan and uh, I'm a fan of Bitcoin, the asset. And so I'm not necessarily a fan of the tech because, you know, we, we built a plane, we're flying in it, and now we're just sort of bolting things on so that it keeps flying. Um, I don't think Bitcoin, the tech is necessarily the way forward. But the asset is fantastic. I can explain it to my parents. I can explain it to people in a wide variety of economic circumstances, and it makes sense. And it and it's even of the times, right? We're seeing this money uh, just getting printed wildly. And you have to ask yourself, like, you know, why did this go to a small business? Why did this go? Like, you're asking yourself, why is the money going different places? And is it fair? And who's making that decision? And I think people are starting to realize, like, it's a little arbitrary and uh, and it has a lot to do with special interests. And so there's just this like growing awareness of of fiscal policy and how it impacts our lives. So while I'm a huge fan of that narrative on the flip side, I'm an engineer and I'm a founder in the crypto space and I like to build things. So I, I want to see a couple of things. I want to see those narratives come together. I don't think they should conflict. I personally think that Bitcoin should 
be the top asset. And I, I don't see like this whole flipping idea to me is just, it's two totally different things. Like with Bitcoin, you're making an investment in a hedge against the world falling apart. And with Ethereum and, and Ether and all of these other assets, you're betting, it's like betting on a tech stock. You're betting on innovation, two totally different ideas. Mm. So, um, so I guess why would someone in the tech narrative care about the asset in this money narrative? And I think the answer is, well, one, if you believe in the tech narrative, you should be a little more open-minded and you could be wrong. So I think that's just, just one. But then after that, it's, you know, Bitcoin has the liquidity, it has the mind share. And if ultimately you think that tech is the thing that's going to win, then why not have more assets on your platform? Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because you have Bitcoiners who want Bitcoin to be the asset everywhere, but they've become really wary of all of the new tech because it often comes with a new asset. And then you have folks on the tech side who part of them, like they want to say, well, we don't need Bitcoin. Mm, you probably do, though. It's got 10x the market cap. You, you do need it. So um, I think that's kind of the motivation. Different parties have different reasons. For Bitcoin, it's, well, hyper-Bitcoinization means Bitcoin everywhere. And, and for tech folks, it's uh, we need more collateral in DeFi. Or it's, uh, you know, we want to take users from Bitcoin down our funnel. Yeah. You know, I, I'd, I'd say there's like within the tech crowd, there's two kinds of people. And you've touched on both, I think, where one is they still are involved in the tech for some financial reason. Yep. There's a lot of people in Ethereum who still care about the value of the token or they they play around with DeFi or, or they're still like in some way, whether it's speculation or opting out of an economy, they're for some reason interested in economics. And for them, obviously, it makes total sense that they should have Bitcoin on the platform. Then there are the side of the tech people who don't care about the financials, where right. to them, Ether is something that I buy with my fiat currency to pay for computation. That's a vanishingly small piece of the crowd. But for them, yeah, maybe Bitcoin doesn't matter because you know that's they're doing it because they want decentralized messaging or whatever, right? Right. Um, and not not because they actually want any sort of financial thing at all. Well, there's a bit of a clash of two visions where even the folks who it's hard to work in the space and to not get economically involved. And I don't know that you should because we're on the tech side, we're system builders, and in this case, these are economic systems as well. Um, but one of the things I'm noticing is, for example, and this is me just calling out Ethereum people because I talk to them a lot, is there um, this attempt to find a new narrative and to say things like eat this money or to say, you know, trying to come up with something that better supports the asset than the story they've had so far. And, um, and to be clear, I have no problem with eat the asset like great. Uh, if, if you've built a thing that provides value and number goes up, fantastic and enjoy the spoils of that. Absolutely no problem with it. But I think that... Um, I think that part of what we're running into is there has been this growing attempt at not Ethereum maximalism, but Ether maximalism on the asset where people are like, yeah, yeah, it's about the tech, but also we don't need that store of value thing. So it's really interesting and we're going to see how it goes. I think there's a paradox of tolerance where a lot of the builders have been cast out before. They don't want to call a new tech like extractive. Or, or like it will hurt their ecosystem at all, and, and it may or may not. That said, I have no idea if bringing Bitcoin to Ethereum or any other chain is going to help Ethereum, <laughs> if it's going to ultimately extract value from the Ethereum ecosystem. I'm, and I'm really excited to find out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm curious to dig into some of these challenges, both. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm interested in technically, but like politically and economically, there's some interesting things to think about, too. Like, if you have Bitcoin on Ethereum, what does that mean in terms of price of both assets? And right. what does it mean in terms of security? What, you know, all these things. Uh, but maybe we start from the basics and just say, what is actually a Bitcoin bridge? How do you build one? Yeah, sure. So um, because of the way Bitcoin works, where it's just incredibly slow moving, um, they've taken the most sort of ossified conservative approach on the tech side possible. Um, it's very difficult to use um, tools we would use today for interop. So there's no like merged consensus. A lot of the message passing tools that, and abstractions people are building for interop really aren't applicable. Um, and so what you have to do instead is at some level, you have to find a way to lock Bitcoin. Mm. And, and it's, you know, um, people love to get tripped up over, over whether it's on the Bitcoin chain or whatever, but you have to have Bitcoin's consensus model, hold the Bitcoin in one spot if you want to, um, you know, air quotes, move it to another chain. So, um, so that's step one. And there are a whole slew of ways to do that in Bitcoin. Um, I know people <laughs> aren't used to talking about Bitcoin's functionality, but it does have some. So not only is there native multi-sig, there are also time locks, which I'm not going to go too far into CLTV and stuff like that, but there's a wide variety of time locking tools. Even though it doesn't have, I'll say, developer-friendly smart contracts, it certainly has script, which can do some things, um, like it can verify some hashes, for example. So there are some, some tools. And then, uh, you know, the problem becomes, how do, you, how do you go the other way? So it's easy to lock something on Bitcoin, but how do you know when to unlock it? And then how do you know if something's been unlocked too early, how to, you know, that, I mean, that's basically fraud. So how do you actually keep that from breaking the bridge? So that's been the tricky stuff we've had to design around. And for me, the answer has been, you know, one answer is kind of like to build this like speculative tech on top of Bitcoin that says, if Bitcoin does do this soft fork, this tech will work, which is pretty weak. <laughs> Another is to um, to lower the security model. So if you look at Liquid, so what Liquid has done, they call, sometimes they call it a two-way peg, they call it a federated peg, but the idea is that you basically take all of your Bitcoin and you put it into one multi-sig, and that multi-sig is governed by 15 parties that are all known and named, but they're all in different jurisdictions. And then you just pray <laughs> that they don't want to take your Bitcoin on, on L1. And then those parties are signatories um, or validators or whatever terminology you want to use for, for another chain called Liquid. So what's good about that approach is it makes use of the tools Bitcoin has. So it's actually feasible. What sucks about it is if those guys are hacked, if there is a, um, like a system-wide issue or, or a zero day, just the money's gone. And you don't get any recourse on the liquid chain or on the Bitcoin chain. It's just, you know, the money's gone. So what we did was we looked at that approach and then we looked at other approaches from Ethereum. So we looked at WBTC and and zero uh, XBTC, which is not really interrupt, but kind of related. <laughs> and um, so we looked at all these approaches and we said, OK, so what's the issue here? Well, with WBTC, you're trusting a whole economy to one party, uh, which is BitGo. And I don't think like Bitcoin is not like the evil empire or anything. They just, they wanted to help move DeFi forward. And so they shipped this thing. But still, they're the custodian for all of the Bitcoin in WBTC, which is pretty frustrating. Mm -hmm. You look at Liquid and you say, okay, well, 
It works the same as liquid, except for liquid has 15 parties. So that's a bit better. But what you don't do is you don't say if either of these walk away with the Bitcoin, we have recourse. So what we added um, is we <laughs> tried to use Bitcoin terminology. We, we've started working on something called a bonded multi-federated peg. So instead of a single peg, either with 15 people or, or one, like, uh, like WBTC, every single deposit gets a new federation. And then each member of that federation puts money down on the Ethereum chain. And what that lets you do is uh, you can actually get proofs from the Bitcoin chain that Ethereum can validate that say if those parties have misbehaved, and then you take their money. So it requires a bunch more collateral. I think that's the downside of the approach. But the upside is you don't need to know your counterparties. They don't need to know you. They just hold a little piece of a key. And if any of them misbehave, you don't just take their money, you take quite a bit more money than you put in and you actually make a profit when they misbehave. Mm -hmm. So that's the structure. It's like, I mean, it's similar to how Bitcoin works. Some things aren't possible cryptographically today. So lean on economics. It sounds like you called it sort of this federated group for each transaction. Uh, yep. Like I realize this is not POS because it's not consensus, but like it is validators in a way, I guess. Like, or, like what do you call them? Like they're staking yeah, so their money. I call them signers. signers. I just call them signers. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we could do it in a way that they actually validated for each deposit. But what we've decided to do is have the Ethereum chain do all the validation. So that means it's more expensive from a gas perspective, but it also means that, you know, it would require an Ethereum hard fork for this stuff to be messed with. Got it. Um, and so I think that's kind of the highest level of security you can get, but it's more expensive. And if you look at other chains where when we do try to bring TBTC to through these other chains, you can actually do the same thing much more cheaply by removing POW in the first place and relying on existing validator sets. Ah, I see. So you'd, be, you'd kind of combine it potentially. Yeah, exactly. So like if you look at like Polkadot, if you look at Cosmos, if you look at any of these kind of faster chains, um, there's usually there's a lot of stuff. There's usually already a random beacon, thankfully. There's usually already a validator set um, that already has a native token. So you don't need to involve something additional. There's just a whole slew of tools that we don't yet have on Ethereum. What is the token like? So going back to those signers, they stake something. Do they make... Do they make money? Do they? There is money. Yes, we don't just ask them to risk it. Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. There so. is money. There okay. is money. So, like, um, in my ideal world, there would be a fee that is uh, discoverable based on utilization. Uh, so we're not there yet. Right now, it's governable, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about governance, I imagine, later. But uh, so the idea is that they need to be paid, but how much? How long? There's just a lot of questions here. Um, there's this idea that people have of like continuous fees because these people are acting sort of as custodians. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of design decisions to make. So what we did was we said, okay, for every deposit, you pay for six months of security and you escrow it. And then when your deposit is redeemed, that is paid out to signers and they've shown like, hey, we've kept track of this Bitcoin and now we've redeemed it and, and, we, and we've earned ours. What's nice about that is that if people go in and out of the bridge frequently, Velocity increases fees to signers quite significantly because there's no prorating of fees. And it also kind of covers the like fee over time situation um, where, you know, you'll have to redeem a deposit and then come back in and then pay the fee again. So it, it, it covers a lot of those concerns. And then, I mean, I think you touched on, Anna, the collateral issue. 
So if you look at this, what should be collateral for signers? And you don't really have a lot of options, right? You have, just like looking at any chain, really, Bitcoin, which is kind of like turtles on turtles. It's quite difficult to do that. There's uh, the, the chain's native asset, so uh, Ether in this case, um, or there's something else. And so when you look at the something else, uh, there's not <laughs> there's not a lot. There's, there's DAI, which is basically just like Ether, right? You're just like stacking uh, risk parameters. There's something like USDT, which you're, in my opinion, you're kind of undermining the whole system if you use a trusted collateral right in the middle. There's various interest yielding assets, which are like interesting, but like not for a V1, they're not. And then there's also like, how are these signers chosen? So in our system, the signers are chosen because they are keep holders. Mm. And the idea is that, um, zooming back to liquid, instead of just choosing like 15 people who run the whole bridge, anyone who holds this token can stake it and be part of the bridge. The thing is, you really shouldn't use a novel token as collateral, as collateral for a large economy. That's sort of crazy, right? So as much as I'd love to be like, look at my cool new token, it can solve all of things. We're just going to very incrementally lean from heavily ETH collateralized to slowly more and more um, the work token. Which is keep. Which is keep, that's right. I'm clearly not used to talking about our token at all. I'm used is, to talking about the bridge mechanics. <laughs> is keep is keep an ERC twenty though? It is. It is an ERC twenty. So it um, sits on top of. It does sit. It on does top of on Ethereum. Ethereum. Yeah. So you have to have something, an, an asset on Ethereum, um, for this to work. Uh, it, it, if you if yeah. you try to get it on another chain, it gets quite hairy. Understood. So yeah. So uh, so that's the idea. Now, if as we launch on new chains, um, we will have to figure out what to do. Like, is there a new token? Probably. I think that's the best system design. Um, what collateral exists on that chain? And then unlike Ethereum, Ethereum right now, there's not a lot of competition for Ether. Even with ETH2 launching, there's just like, look at the rates that people are getting in DeFi to lock up ETH right now. It's, it's mostly because people are trying to get access to leverage. It's not because they're earning interest on it. And so right now, ETH is a great choice, but I think on other chains where the asset's already productive, for example, it's already part of proof of stake, mm. um, the calculus is going to be different because you don't know if there's going to be the economic bandwidth to use that native asset. That's in an interesting point of view. Yeah, it would almost compete, right? It would compete against That's right. the validators. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And there, there is a way to kind of, you just have to look at the native chain's economics to see if you can slot right into the same validator set or if you need a different validator set with a different collateral. Yeah. I mean, for Polkadot, it's something that we think about and talk about a lot is, I mean, there's the sort of ideal staking rate parameter, which initially is like 50%, which means yep. ideally 50% of the tokens are locked up for validating. And then you have a certain portion that has to be economically available for parachains and then you have another set that has to be economically available to incentivize bridges and then whatever's left of that is what you can actually transfer around right. in parachains and if there's like a smart contract chain that uses the native token then then like it's that remaining percentage that's used for paying for computation right yeah, so it's it's tricky. So, like for example, uh, and full disclosure, I'm totally working on a Polkadot design. I'm working on a lot of chains designs in parallel, but uh, but uh, I've dug into Polkadot pretty deeply. And what I see with Polkadot's economics is probably that we should switch how Keep and ETH work for Keep and Dots. So likely, what we would do is we would actually do work selection with the existing validator set, 
and then uh, this other token is acting as the collateral because they're likely, I don't expect there to be a lot of free dots for collateral for stuff like this. And then you're limiting the actual uh, bandwidth of the bridge. But, you know, obviously it's speculative and I'm still working through it, so. Yeah. An interesting thing, and I think what I see scare a lot of Bitcoin people when talking about Bitcoin bridges is when you start involving any other token, it's like the weakest link argument, right? Whichever token I can corrupt or whichever token I can attack is the thing that will take the thing down. Yep. And so if keep is the token that's being used and, and like some evil person buys all the keep, totally. they now have control of the bridge. Yeah, so maybe in like V10, but right now, if someone buys all the keep, actually, like if I go evil and every single affiliate I know that owns keep goes evil, TBTC, the holders actually get more money than we do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what happens is we all try to abscond with the Bitcoin and then we have 150% collateralization in Ether. So that all gets returned to depositors. And so, and so that's why I'm so loath to involve our own token. And I want to do it quite slowly and incrementally because I agree with them. I do think that a novel token is the weakest link. And I do think that, uh, like, ultimately, you guys are hearing me. I'm not trusting an honest majority here. I'm sort of going to, like, the most paranoid level possible in the system design. And that includes us. Like, yeah. you know, we could get turned or we could get hacked or um, there could be pressure from law enforcement. And you have to design for that or you're not doing what's right for users. But from a Bitcoiner's point of view, even trusting Ether is kind of dangerous. They, they're is. only a tenth of the value of, of Bitcoin. I mean... That's pretty easy to corrupt. <laughs> but you gotta do something, man. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta do something. So I, I think that's why like uh, Ether is a decent, I mean, really the argument will come down to, they'll say, okay, well, let's say we think Ether is okay. At least it's still proof of work, yada, yada. Well, then their argument will be, where do you get the price from BTC to ETH? Like that's the next weak spot. Yeah. And, um, and in V1 for us, it's just maker. So it is totally a weakness. Um, the plan, though, is to actually roll out a cross-chain price feed because you can, it's complicated because anything with Bitcoin is complicated. So it's kind of like if you think of the idea of batched auctions for price, but you actually invert it. So instead of requiring all of the liquidity that the batched auction does, you only open orders at the edge of your price ranges. And if the orders never get closed, you know that the price is likely within that range with some confidence. So um, it's a really interesting model I'm excited to write up, but uh, I, I won't drilling too hard right now yeah. I mean, an interesting thing would be if there was actually a decentralized exchange like on ethereum that had right. real liquidity then you could use the price from that you would hope right but then you know you're that's assuming that tbtc and btc trade at parity and that's actually not yeah, an assumption okay. i've made in the system security yeah, so that, far yeah it's true i guess it should be worth a bit less because there's more risk involved and more I, i'd expect things. it goes both ways Right. Because like I can see times when like, of course, like the market should devalue this because it's not Bitcoin. But then you look at lightning and Bitcoin on lightning isn't being devalued. Mm -hmm. um, Bitcoin on liquid isn't being valued that way. So I think there's the perfect market idea, which it seems like we aren't because we have we are in a yeah, crazy, no. crazy market. Right. But then there's also like, um, you know, maybe a whole bunch of TBTC gets locked up in some cool Ponzi scheme on Ethereum. Sorry. And some cool interest rate mechanism on Ethereum, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, and suddenly it's at a premium. So we'll see. I guess you could argue both ways that it should be devalued because of the additional risk or additional parameters, or it should be upvalued uh, because it has more utility. 
on yeah. So it's it's just like this is another one of those like I'm fascinated to find out what happens. Yeah. Have you actually like with WBTC, which has been around a little bit longer, have you been able to like learn from that and how that actually expresses itself on these on these chains? Yeah. So um, there were a couple interesting events in WBTC's history that I've paid pretty close attention to. So one was the BZX hack, and um, WBTC was just like party to that. It wasn't necessarily like it could have been another token that was used. But uh, what was interesting was just the lack of liquidity and how that slippage was part of the attack. <laughs> so I think that that actually said a lot to me where um, ultimately we can build all these fancy things, but liquidity will be king. Um, was this the one that we talked? I think we talked about it on yeah. the show with like Tarun and James. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It was a pretty big moment. <laughs> I think, flash loans, right? Yeah, yeah, because it was kind of like, oh yeah, flash loans change things. Okay, I'll put I'll put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to understand what you're talking about there. Cool. Yeah, so it's just like it's actually really interesting because it's this one atomic transaction, and you can kind of break it out into this like eighty call subgraph and dig through exactly how it worked. But at the end of the day, like WBTC was a piece of that, and the low liquidity was part of. Uh, related to the attack. And so I think I learned quite a bit from that, that just having the number of BTC in the system is not enough. It needs to be in the right place. You need to have liquidity in the right places for this to actually do what it's supposed to. Um, And then also just like flash loans are going to be more and more common. And so you really need to design with them in mind. Interesting. So I think that's one. Another that I've learned is why has WBTC taken off so slowly? So recently it started doing better, which has been great. But the reason is that it's a pain in the ass to mint it. So with WBTC, if you want to mint, you go to a merchant. The merchant does KYC. The KYC will all be jurisdiction specific. You'll have to trust them with your personal information. Then it'll take a few hours and eventually you'll get minting. So now WBTC has become a lot more popular. And the reason is because CoinList has started minting. And so CoinList actually has um, some folks with with deep pockets and interest in, in minting WBTC. And you can see they're doing 1,000 WBTC mints now, which is just you know incredible to watch. And so I think that's going to be what's important with TBTC is can we lower that barrier as much as possible? So any dApp I use, I can drop Bitcoin in and have one cohesive experience. Hmm. Unlocks all the money. Have you seen any proposal on Ethereum to try to unify the different BTCs? <laughs> so like, it would be nice if I didn't have to care about which version of BTC I'm using in my contract. Yeah, yeah. So we've seen a couple. So there's um, BTC++ by PyDAO. It's built on top of Balancer. And they, I mean, they do, there's a little bit of human management where if something gets hacked, like IMBTC was hacked recently and they intervened and paused the trading. So we've seen that. Um, we've seen uh, Curve actually uh, will be launching a TBTC pool shortly. And so that's going to make it quite easy for um, anyone to get between any of the Bitcoins trustlessly or, or through KYC. Yeah, I, I mean, it's getting there. Um, whether they'll be, I guess, BTC++ is kind of that meta token. Yeah. So let's talk about the snafu that you mentioned yeah, just before. It. Or your, what did you call it? Something something release zero? Oh, yeah, release candidate zero. <laughs> release yeah. candidate so, zero. <laughs> so here's the funny thing. So what, let's, yeah, no. let's explain to everybody what that is. <laughs> sure. In excruciating detail. Okay. Um, and, and if, and if <laughs> Thank I Thank you for coming on and you, doing that, by the way. Of course. If I don't satisfy <laughs> anyone, please read the postmortem. We tried to be uh, pretty exhaustive. Um, so here's what happened. 
and I'm going to go back a little bit and then I'll get to the juicy stuff. So going back a little bit, you know, it's really important that you only innovate on one thing when you ship a new product. Um, but we did get a little greedy and we tried to innovate on two. So when we decided to build TBTC, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on governance that are quite heterodox, I think, to folks in Ethereum. Um, and I think really since the DAO in Ethereum, there's been this philosophy of, you know, if you don't have upgrades, your stuff will get hacked. But if you do have upgrades, well, let's just not talk about the upgrades and pretend that they're not there so we can keep our trustless narrative going. And there's some cognitive dissonance, and some people have started to realize that, like Chris Black, for example, on Twitter has, has gone over this quite a bit. And so what it's led to is all of these decentralized products that then have admin keys that they never talk about. And those admin keys have tremendous powers, which is frustrating. So I wanted to um, ship something that was a little bit, believe it or not, more immutable than the standard in Ethereum. But I also don't want to lose user funds, right? And so we said, how can you do that? Well, there's only so much money you can spend on audits and formal verification. And there's just only so much assurance you can get. So we thought we had enough. And uh, so what we decided to do on the governance side is this. There will be an owner key that the dev team will initially have. It'll just be a multi-sig. We'll eventually be able to layer stuff on it, but make no promises to the community because that's outside the security model. And then the, the key will have five powers. Most of them are boring, fee updates, lot size updates, et cetera. But there's one interesting one. So because we can't upgrade the contracts, we said, well, how could we defend people in the case of a zero day? So we added a, an emergency pause for new deposits. So it's a button you press um, that, the, that the team can press, and it says for the next 10 days, new Bitcoin will not be accepted in the system. You can still redeem, withdraw. It makes no changes to the economics. Um, but that gives us 10 days to sort of alert people of an issue, etc. Okay, so fast forwarding. We actually launched the system. And we launched on a Friday. And the idea was that we could quietly be doing system tests. Because if you've played with Bitcoin, it's testnet. It is not the same as mainnet. And so we started doing system tests over the weekend. We added a whole bunch of alpha warnings all over the dApps. Uh, and then we restricted deposits to 0.001 BTC. So it's not even, with gas costs, it doesn't even make sense to mint that small. So we do all this. And then a couple cowboys in our community decided to fork the dap and remove the restriction. And so they just started printing TBTC wildly, which like, you know, people after my own heart, but really not a safe thing to do when there are alpha warnings everywhere. Um, so anyway, so they got to around 12 BTC that they had minted. And we were monitoring everything happening on chain. And we saw a redemption that looked a little funny. And so um, we dug in and this was like, I want to say 1130 a, a p.m. Eastern Sunday, and and we see this issue, and we realize like, ooh, under this there is something that it's just like it's a showstopper vulnerability. And I'm glad I can talk about it because for a few days we had to be a little quiet about it. So so what we did immediately was I got a call, verified. We called James Prestwich because he's our kind of resident like Bitcoin script expert. We had him confirm. So we had multiple people people confirm the vulnerability, and then we said, okay, what are we gonna do? Well, this is going to hurt, but let's stop the thing. We don't want to put more funds at risk. So um, we immediately, we pressed the button. I think we pressed it two and a half hours after discovery once we had it fully verified. So at that point, uh, no additional funds were at risk. And actually, stepping back, at no point were depositor funds at risk at all. So what's interesting about this is we've designed the system to be to favor deposit security so strongly that hacks like this hurt signers first. Mm. So this was actually an attack. Almost all of the attacks actually we found against the system have been about getting signers 
to have to pay up with their Ether as well as Bitcoin. So we worked with the affected signers. Uh, we collected all of the TBTC into one wallet and we've been slowly redeeming. We're down to like 0.5, I think, left in the old contract. So what next? Wait, before you do that, though, yes. what what is the like you say? That oh, what's the actual hack? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's actually it's it's un, it's uh, it's embarrassing. It's like all of these things are in retrospect. Um, so the hack was that we. Uh, in an early version of the system, we required that you only use native BEC32 SegWit uh, outputs. So when someone says, I'd like to redeem, you basically have to use the newest wallet and the newest address format. And if you don't do those things, then you can participate in the system. So that's pretty bad for UX. A lot of people are using multi-chain wallets that didn't really embrace SegWit for a long time, um, which is segregated witness for people who aren't interested in Bitcoin are used to hearing about this side. And uh, so we made this change for UX. And if you look back at the commit where we made it, it very clearly says there's not test cases for this. Like, so it's just a huge face palm for us. Um, so when we started supporting these other legacy addresses, what we did was we uh, left a hole where you could request that um, the redemption happens, but then the signer could never prove that they sent the Bitcoin. And so now requesters can get their Bitcoin out Signers can't prove that they sent their Bitcoin. Even if the requester is not trying to hurt the signer, you can't prove to the chain, right? So um, we've gotten a couple uh, a couple things that we've learned from that. One has been, I mean, just in general, we need to take the Bitcoin touching pieces of the system much more seriously. I've been in the Bitcoin space for a long time, but the last time that I had touched script before this project was pre-SegWit. My head of engineering is fantastic but he started on Ethereum first, not Bitcoin. So since then, we've done quite a few things. Uh, we had already had a second audit starting with Trail of Bits, actually the Monday after. Um, so that was quite convenient where we just, if it's supposed to be an immutable code base, you just want to keep auditing and auditing and auditing. So Trail of Bits has been fantastic. They have found, like basically they took that same bug and have like five variants of it. So we're strengthening our patch for the big bug. Uh, and then the other thing has just been this is a complicated piece of software, and so um, and so we've revised our deployment strategy a bit. So instead of just like press the button to deploy, there it is, guys, and now we're going to test uh, with alpha warnings. We're now making it explicit um, for this next release that it's a release candidate, and that means that it might have bugs, you know. And and I I thought I mean this is foolish, but I kind of thought like we're launching on Ethereum and it has alpha warnings everywhere. That's enough, but clearly it's not. Mm -hmm. Now that we're doing this RC model, I think it'll be hopefully a little bit more obvious. I've also added market cap restrictions. So for the first thirty days, it can't go over hundred BTC. For the next thirty, two fifty, five hundred, a thousand, and then the whole thing gets removed. Yeah, so I hope it'll be enough. Why did forking the code allow? Like, that's the part that I'm not entirely clear about. No, so, so what happened was, um, so our engineer made a change before the code had been deployed. Okay. That, you know, just, I mean, similar to a lot of the famous hacks in the space where it's just like, we missed it. So, yeah, so it wasn't that he made, there was no fork in production because uh, there's not really a way to change those contracts in production, which is both the cool part and the terrible part. I think Anna is talking about the removal of the restriction of the limits. So some oh, you, you oh, said someone. I see. You mean the forking the DAP? Yeah, someone yeah, forked so, the code base, remove that limit, deploy their own contracts. Yeah. So, got it. So we don't give ourselves. So I went through like the whole team has gone through the code base, and we've tried to kill anything that uh, that acts at all like a kill switch. 
So if you think about what kill switches are in the system, if we could restrict deposits to only 0.001 BTC, that's effectively killing the project. If we can change collateral thresholds to huge, wild ranges, that's killing the project. If we can arbitrarily change price feeds, that's a kill switch too. So like everything that sounds so normal, if you if you say, if I got hacked, what would happen? That It can all turn into kill switches. So we've really tied our hands behind our back for a lot of this governance where um, we can't restrict, like we all, you always can deposit one BTC in the system. We can add other lot sizes, smaller and larger, but you always have to be able to deposit one BTC. Otherwise the team could just turn it all off and shut the system down. So yeah, so that's why, um, so what we did was we made this restriction in the DAP, um, but of course it's a DAP, which means we're not the only ones running it. And it's not like we obfuscated the change. Anyone could just go and you could you could just do it in Chrome and Web Dev tools oh. and just kind of like deposit what you wanted. Um, so like I sort of I I love that right like that is permissionlessness, but it's also terrifying. So they forked it. They forked the DAP, and then they got rid of the kind of limits on your power. Therefore, they could kill it. But only the front end, not the contracts. Only the front end, yeah. Okay. So that so the contracts didn't change at all. So yeah. they took the front end from GitHub. They ran it locally, which is kind of like that's the point. They ran it locally, and then they changed all, all that we restricted here was in the browser. We didn't have a way to really restrict the contracts, so they removed the in browser restriction. Um, but how did that? Like, what did that trigger? Like, why did that, in a way, did that just reveal to you that, like, oh, this is something that could happen, therefore we have to fix so, it? Or Well, no. So what that triggered is we probably would have found this over the weekend regardless. It just was the difference between finding it with 0.001 BTC and finding it with 12. Oh, I see. That's They they took out the limit of that, and then some people started to use that DAP exactly. clone exactly. kind of instead of yours. Understood. Exactly. Okay, and that av averted you to the problem. Okay, and it was a little bit of a bigger problem than it would have been if it had just been the point zero. Yeah, yeah. well, it's like more funds were at risk. How are you actually able to recover those, though? Like you said that you've now oh. been able to give them back in a way. Oh, yeah. So um, so first, in this case, depositors, like, were always able to recover. So, like, depositors always could have recovered, but the signers could have lost ETH in that recovery. So what we did is, you know, it's still a small project. We only had 12 BTC. So we just hit up, like we knew almost every single person that had minted. And then the people who forked the DAP were like proud. <laughs> and so we reached out directly to them and we were like, you know. And so we just said, here, here's some Bitcoin. Can you just like make the trade? Let's put it all in one wallet. And then we collected all the TBTC in one wallet. And then we did a slow redemptions in a way that we knew didn't trigger this bug. Um, which basically just means we used fancy new SegWit wallets instead of older wallets. Cool. Okay. Now I understand a little bit more yeah. this, this whole story. I mean, I don't want to minimize it, right? So that's that's uh, ha having something like that. We we pull we push an emergency switch and said never use these contracts again. Like that is a dangerous bug. Um, and I think for me, what I'm happy about is no one lost any money. I'm happy that we found it early. And it's like at the end of the day, I would always rather our team take a rep hit of taking something down to two days after putting it up, then I would have users lose funds. Because can you imagine you're a Bitcoiner who uses a system like this? If you lose a single Satoshi, you're never going to touch Ethereum again. Mm. And, uh, and I think that we just need to make that our priority.
Do you think the bug was discovered by accident because they were using old wallets or because they were trying to find bugs? No, no, it was absolutely an accident. Uh, in fact, the the outside party didn't discover the bug. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my head of engineering uh, was helping them with something else. He saw the transaction and then he found the bug. Uh, yeah, see. exactly. So, yeah, again, so we discovered it um, internally, basically, and... Uh, and, and I'm quite pleased with that aspect as well. But a lot of bugs don't, a lot of the times it doesn't go this well. Usually you have $25 million in the system and then poof. And so I'm quite pleased that that was not the story. Yeah. Going back to what we were talking about before with these like deployment of TBTC on multiple chains, I'm just kind of curious, would, that, would it act in a way, like would you have to do TBTC ETH? TBTC I have dot no idea. TB, like are yeah. they all unique things? <laughs> yeah. So 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 technically, yes. Yeah. And I think what we have to figure out, and I think that now that all these second and third generation chains are coming online, everyone needs to figure this out. Is like we're going to have TBTC on two chains. They will have different security parameters. They will have different amounts of money in them. Do you treat them as one asset? And in fact, do you ever treat TBTC as its own asset, or is it all just Bitcoin? Yeah. You know, and then it gets even more interesting. My plan for each of these chains is to fork Keep's token holder set because I want to bring our validators with us. So, like, if you like validating on Ethereum, why don't you come validate on Polkadot and run the system? And so that's where it gets really interesting where it's like you can't even say this is all Bitcoin. Now it's like Keep A, Keep B, Keep C. Mm. Um, so I think it's going to be a wild experiment. I think tickers are not the right paradigm. But then on the flip side, if you look at exchanges' interests, what do they want? Now, do they want to be as clear as possible to you about the asset, or do they want liquidity to be pooled? And, and it's usually the latter. So I think what's going to happen is that exchanges are probably going to swallow a lot of the differentiation. And instead of saying, do you want to buy TBTC A, B, or C, maybe what they'll say is, do you want to withdraw Bitcoin to Ethereum, mm. to Polkadot, to Lightning? And I think that that's kind of the end game uh, when when all of this gets solid and proven out. Cool. Which uh, networks are you actually examining? You mentioned, I mean, you're on Ethereum, yep. you're thinking, you're kind of examining yep. Polkadot. What else are you looking at? Well, so uh, I guess I'll first get my controversial opinion out, which is right now there are only two economically relevant chains, right? And there's Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so really what you're asking is, who are you going to make a bet on? Right. Because I want Bitcoin to be everywhere. <laughs> but but who am I going to gamble could take Ethereum on? Right. Or maybe find a different use case. So uh, chains that we've looked at. Um, so we've looked at Polkadot, Cosmos. Uh, and then after that, it gets really interesting. So Celo and ETC are both low hanging fruit because they're EVM compatible. Mm. Right. Then you look at um, Algorand is interesting for a totally different set of reasons. Um, Solana is interesting because one of their first use cases is this high throughput DAP, and clearly you want more assets on a high throughput DAP for a new chain. Near, I, I, I love kind of their vision for Web3. And so I think for us, it, it we're in this position where we have to evaluate all these tool chains and say, like, what's likelihood of the chain succeeding? What's the lift? Like getting getting live on Celo versus getting live on a novel tool set, very different. So yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll be sharing our journey, I think, over the next six months um, for Chain 2. This sort of leads to the last question that I that I have for you, which is about the cross-chain initiative. What do you guys call yourselves? Cross-chain? 
cross-chain group. Yeah, the yeah. cross-chain group. Yeah. So um, Keep slash Thesis, depending on how you want to talk about that, and Summa, so that's James Presswich's company, have been collaborating on all sorts of infrastructure. And I think, you know, he's been really focused on SPV proofs and Bitcoin relays in all of these ecosystems. And then what we'll do is, you know, once he's gotten that out, we'll start layering our work on top of his. And I think one of the things that we found collaborating is, I mean, we're friends and that makes it easier, obviously, to do. But it's quite difficult to get all of the L1s in a room to fund something that they all need. So a lot of this SPV work, you know, it it needs to be in Wasm across 10 chains. Why don't we just have one little pool of money that can fund the whole thing? And so I think, you know, you'll find similar. I was on a panel recently with Aiden from Chainsafe, and there are similar issues where each partisan group wants to fund the thing that helps it, but it's difficult to get people to fund public goods. So that's the goal with cross-chain group. Um, we've got a, a number of um, L1s that have signed up, uh, and I think we're just waiting to kind of finish this first TBTC release and then double down and, and grow it. And we'll it, I should say it is totally a not-for-profit. It's, it's an industry group, and there will be no token or primary value capture for the group. It's just public goods. But is it primarily bridges? Like, is it the kind of TBTC-like things that it focuses on? Yeah, so I would say I would say it's, it's bridges and uh, infrastructure. So I think other areas of interest would be, can we have robust HD wallets that work across all of these assets? Can we have interop between these signature schemes? If you look at, uh, like Bitcoin just got partially signed Bitcoin transactions uh, as a standard very recently. And that stuff is everywhere in the cross-chain space, just like simple standards that will unlock a lot of innovation if you can just agree and stop building your own damn thing. So um, so that's the idea is we just want to focus that. And uh, there's a good chance that I'll end up handing, we will end up handing the governance of TBTC over to this group. We aren't long-term the right group to make decisions about this bridge. Like, obviously, there's a huge economic interest in it succeeding, and we're going to spend a lot of time promoting it and, and making it available everywhere. But it's uh, it's users and and stakers who should make these decisions. So, um, so yeah, so there's a good chance that this group will also be a target for um, some sort of decentralization as well. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, helping us to understand TBTC and a lot of the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. And I love that you're uh, promoting promoting understanding of this tech. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was fun talking. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.